0: 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. Our reading is from verse eight. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking it is not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but it rejoices with the truth it always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres and our passage for this evening love never fails but where there are prophecies they will cease For now we see only reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love.
1: What kind of jobs do you think must be really hard to do? Uh, I don't just mean because perhaps you don't have the experience or the gifts, but what kind of jobs do you think would just be tiring and difficult and discouraging, however long you were to do them? Um, I don't know any pension advisors, but I wonder whether being a pension advisor might be one of those kinds of jobs. Because your role is basically to tell people, I want you to stop spending all of your money now. (laughs) You need to forgo some of the pleasures, some of the fun things of life right here because you need to put some of your money into some fund that you have no control over that's going to go down as much as it's going to go up in the hope that it's going to provide you with some retirement for the future. Please give me your money. (laughs) And repeat, and repeat, and repeat. That doesn't seem to be a very... Easy job, in my opinion. And in some ways, though in far more important ways, Paul is trying to help the Corinthians to do something similar here. He's trying to help them wrestle with one of their many problems, which as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, is an obsession with certain spiritual gifts. And in particular, the blinkered way that they look at those gifts in the here and now. If you're with us last week, we saw that they weren't exercising their gifts as God had intended. They weren't exercising their gifts with love. They wanted to exercise their gifts in a way that just showed off and drew attention to themselves instead of serving one another and pointing each other to Jesus. Now, if you do that, Paul told us last week, your gift is as good as nothing. The very way you're trying to use your gift is undermining its purpose in equipping God's people to draw attention to Jesus. It's only as we use the gift with Christ-like Christ-empowered love, that we bring glory to him and are a blessing to one another. That was last week. This week, Paul changes focus. He shows us that we need to have the right perspective on love and spiritual gifts. And in one sense, just like the Corinthians, we need to look to the future, not to remember that we may well have a retirement and we need to start saving into a pension. Paul wants to so fix our minds on the future that it changes the way we think and act today. He's essentially saying that our gifts have a shelf life. Not just because we're going to die and we all will unless Jesus returns. And not just because there is an end of time coming. And not just because gifts are imperfect or, or at least incomplete. There's, there's a sense in which that all of these things are going to come to an end because they will find their fulfillment at the end. What's the end? We'll come to that. Uh, What I want you to think about tonight is that as you look at your life with an eternal perspective, it shapes the way you think about everything. Shapes the way you think about all sorts of things that are in this text. Money, relationships, career, all those kinds of things. But in this text, it especially shapes the way you think about how you use your gifts and how you prioritize faith, hope, and especially love. That's where we're going. And Paul begins by telling us that love never fails. We've uh, translated that Greek word uh, as fails. Your translation may say ends. When Paul first wrote this letter in Greek, he used a word that was, described, that was used to describe buildings that would collapse or, uh, or crumble, <laughs> which is all a bit fresh in our minds at the moment, isn't it? Because uh, there's all sorts of schools up and down the country where you can't go into school at the moment for fear that the thing's going to fall down on top of you. Some, have, some of you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you're in schools right now that you actually can't be in physically because they're still trying to work out where they can squeeze all the kids in. Um, you may have seen in the news this week, Coppice Primary in Redbridge in East London, uh, they got a bit of a profile because they can't get their inspection to see if there's any rack in their buildings So they are inspecting almost daily 53 specific parts of their buildings to try and work out whether it's safe. If you're a teacher or a parent or a student attached to that school, it would be frightening. Thinking, is my building going to fail? God says his love will never fall or fail. It will never, ever change because it's eternally permanent. Why is that? It's because love isn't just a gift that flows from the giver. It's God's very nature. John tells us, 1 John 4, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So the very love that we have received flows from the very nature of the God who gives us all of the other gifts as well. And therefore cannot end, because he never ends. It won't even end at the judgment at the end of human history. This um, verb, fall, fail, is a verb that Paul often uses when he's talking about the end times. Christians often talk about that as eschatology, the study of the end times. And that's a word that Paul often uses in that context. He he writes in other places about lots of other things that are going to fail. They're going to collapse. They are going to be brought to an end because of that end judgment. But not love. That will continue all the way into the new heavens and the new earth forever. One preacher I read this week described love as the very air of heaven. For it's the nature of the God who's there. And it's in stark contrast to that, that the spiritual gifts the Corinthians obsessed over will end. Second thing he shows us is that spiritual gifts are a temporary blessing for this age. If you look at the rest of verse 8, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And again, when Paul first wrote that, he actually made it even clearer that there would be times and churches where there would not be prophecy or tongues or knowledge. The the New American Standard Translation probably gets this as close to the Greek as any English translation. It says, um, but if there are any gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Even if... The Spirit of God were to bless your church with any of those gifts, Paul says they're going to come to an end. Prophecy will cease. Knowledge will pass away. Verse 9, knowledge and prophecy will disappear. Verse 11, childish ways are put behind me. Cease, pass away, disappear, put behind me. They're all different verbs for us. They're all translating the same Greek root verb. Katageo in Greek. It's describing something that ceases to Happen. It's another word Paul often uses when he's thinking about the end times. He's talking very much about these three gifts that they, the Corinthians valued so highly, coming to an end because, verse 9, here's the four. here's the reason, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul's looking out at that New Testament church perhaps even by faith, thinking about the New Testament church for the future until Jesus returns. He's saying, for all of the goodness and the blessings of the gifts that you have, the knowledge and the prophecy that you have, it is incomplete. That's not because the prophecy is mixed with error. It's not because there is something that is imperfect in that sense in the prophecy that is given. But... The finite minds of sinful but saved men and women like you and I who are living in the broken world that we live in are unable to fully understand the fullness of God's plan for his world. We live in a day of partial, incomplete knowledge. But there is coming a day, Paul says, when completeness Comes. Your translation may say the perfect comes. And when the perfect, the completeness comes, what is in part, instead of complete, meaning all the spiritual gifts, including tongues and prophecy and knowledge, they will disappear. So we've got the big idea. Spiritual blessings, gifts, like prophecy, tongues and knowledge, part of the incomplete and the partial, they will end when the perfect, the complete, comes. So what's the perfect to the complete? Well, um, some Christians argue that it is the completion of the canon. So you have one book in your hand if you're holding a physical Bible. Uh, it consists of 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. If you want to quickly remember how to do that, 39, 3 times 7 is 27, together making the 66 books of the canon. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there were more than 20. well, there are 26 other books in the Bible, but a number of them had yet to be written. And so, some people read what's being described here and think what Paul is describing is a time when the completion of the canon... 27 books of the New Testament, is finally pulled together. And we will then have the completion, the perfect, that draws an end to these other things. And part of the reason that sometimes Christians argue in that way is because we rightly see that there are a number of spiritual gifts that ended with the apostolic period. So we look back through church history and we can see that some of the remarkable miracles and supernatural gifts that were given through the Spirit to the apostles ended at that point. And perhaps if we tie the completion of the canon to that period, it would explain why those gifts ended then. But the Bible isn't the perfect completeness that Paul's thinking about here. Uh, I want to explain that for you in two different ways and then hopefully show you what it is pointing towards. First problem with that argument is it doesn't fit the context. So if Paul had been thinking at all about God drawing together the canon, the other 26 books of the New Testament, in his mind, none of that is in his mind in First Corinthians 13. And it will be very hard to think that if you're reading this as a member of the church in Corinth, you would read through that section of the letter and think, oh, I know what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the canon being completed and us having the fullness of the revelation of God for his people for the rest of time. That's not the context that's going on. In fact, what we're going to see in a minute, verse 12, the clearest context is something else. Second problem with that argument is it doesn't fit the description. For all of the fullness and the blessing of God's word, it doesn't enable us to see him face to face. For all of what it reveals to us about ourselves and the world we live in and most wonderfully of all about God himself, it doesn't help us to know fully even as I'm fully known. What fits with all that eschatological language of the falling and of all of these verbs describing things ceasing and of all of this description of the blessings to come isn't the Bible, it's seeing Jesus face to face. That's what Paul has got in mind With because when we're together with him, all of our prophecies are going to end because we'll be standing before God himself who won't need a prophet to speak on his behalf. We'll be looking at God himself in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't need any kind of knowledge that tongues could bring in that moment. We'll be looking right at the King of Kings. And all of that knowledge that we have now, though we truly know things now, and please don't misunderstand all of this description going on in this chapter, to think, well, I can't know anything truly now. That's not Paul's point. You absolutely can know things truly now. That's why we have this wonderful gift of God's word. What we are given, though, is not something that gives us perfect knowledge. When we see Jesus, we will finally be able to understand all that any created beings will be able to understand. And that's why Paul turns to this image of a boy Becoming a man. When I was a child, I taught like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, for many years, I've read that passage and thought, this is uh, one of those personal anecdotes of Paul. Uh, he's looking back on his life and thinking of when he was a young, immature Christian who thought and talked and reasoned like a young, immature Christian. But now... Now he's a mature Christian, and he's put those ways behind him. And given everything that we've understood about the book of Corinth as well, the book of Corinthians, I should say, um, you could well imagine Paul also being a little critical of the Corinthians at this point. You could imagine him saying, all the stuff you're obsessing over, that's what baby Christians obsess over. Would you grow up? (laughs) And for all of the other things that we've seen in this letter, though without using those exact words, Paul's made that argument, hasn't he? He's shown them that they're focusing on the wrong things. But that's not how this illustration works. Paul's using this childhood to adulthood illustration to show us something about God's working in redemptive history, God's Big, overarching plan for all of human history. Now, if you flick in your Bible over to Galatians 4, I want you to see another occasion where Paul does this. Um, Galatians chapter 4, Paul is talking about children who are too young to inherit. And so to protect them, they have a guardian who looks over their inheritance until they come of age. And that is a real-life problem and is a real-life solution. But Paul's not talking about a specific person who inherited a fortune when they were six years old. If you look at what's going on in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, he's using that problem to explain how God's promises to his old covenant people have now been fulfilled in his new covenant people. He's taken a very real-life, personal story to explain something of what God is doing in the big sweep of redemptive history. So you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, he's doing the same thing here. He's looking forward to a day when he and all Christians will suddenly be matured out of childhood. Which again is an idea that we wrestle with in our culture, because that transition from one to the other is a much more gradual process in our day and age, isn't it? Some things happen at 16. Some things happen at 17. Some things happen at 18. Some parents are waiting for them to happen at 40. And you can be left thinking, when's this process going to happen? You know, in Judaism, it was very, very marked. Bar mitzvahs marked the transition of a young man to a young adult. And that one ceremony Brought them from one to the other. And that's what Paul's describing here. He is looking at this very distinct moment when he and all believers are going to finally meet Jesus and they will go from being children to adults. Adults don't play with kids toys. I mean, you do when you're playing with your kids. You know what I mean. You don't talk in the way that you do When you're a child, all of those childhood things are preparing you for all the things you then get to enjoy in their fullness in adulthood. Some of you are weaning your kids right now. In our house, Annabelle Carmel was the menu maker for what our girls had as they were weaned. And Annabelle Carmel's principle, her philosophy, is that you take as many different fruits, vegetables, meats, whatever, and you, you reduce it down to that pulpy consistency in the hope that you're introducing your child to all the different flavors and textures of food, such that when they start eating solids, they really enjoy everything. Now, it has varying degrees of success. But the whole plan is that you go from that which is preparing you to that which is the fullness. And there'd be a problem if your child gets into their 20s, looks at their Sunday roast, and says, can I have it pulped? You'd be like, no. (laughs) No, we did all that thing so that you'd be ready to enjoy the fullness of all of the things that you get when you're an adult. That's the kind of description, the parallel that Paul's making, and he builds on it in verse 12 with another four. Four, and what I want to focus on here thirdly, is that when we meet Jesus, we won't have any need for temporary gifts. Look at the contrast Paul makes. Jamie read them out really helpfully for us. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now, again, it's not to undermine the blessing and the goodness of the gifts. We keep on having to remind ourselves of those things, don't we? Because the swing can be, that you know, the Corinthians were too obsessed with them, and then we can miss the blessing. That's not the point. What Paul is saying is, even with all of these wonderful blessings, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Um, If you were brought up with the AV, or perhaps you've heard some of the lovely language of the King James Version, this is famously translated as, for now we see through a glass darkly or dimly, which is a a very poignant description in Corinth, because Corinth was famous for making its mirrors. Not that most ordinary people, or perhaps most of the people in the church in Corinth could afford one, because they're very expensive. But Corinth was famous for making these clear mirrors. Clear because they were a costly thing to make And for most people, you didn't have a perfectly good mirror or, in the case of the AV, a glass to look through. You'd have like a really polished piece of metal or a not a, an imperfect reflecting mirror. I, I read this um, and I think of the old mirror that used to hang in my nan's entrance lobby that was kind of browning round the edges. anybody else got a mirror like that in their house? And, and it, you'd had it for so long. I mean, it was never great when you bought it, but now it's so bad that when you look at it, it's like looking in one of those funny mirrors in Jefferson Gardens, and you know everything's a bit distorted. That's the kind of picture that Paul's describing here. He's saying that in this life, with all of the spiritual gifts that we have, even with prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, we can see all sorts of things, lots of things, but the vision the clarity of it isn't perfect. Every now and then I have to go and have an eye test. My eyes are not great. And, and the poor optician that has to try and work through my sight, <laughs> they start off with one lens, and you know they adjust it sharper, blurrier, all that kind of stuff. And the poor, I, I've now got used to the appointment. I walk in, and the very first thing I say is, I'm really sorry, I've got awful eyesight, and this is going to be a test of your patience. I will do the best that I can. It takes about half an hour. Everybody else is in and out in about five minutes. And I'm there going, uh, uh. That's what's been described. It's that sense of, I can see some things. It's not that you can't see anything. But perfectly, fully, when we see Jesus... It'll be like that moment. Do you remember after COVID, and we'd all done so many Zoom meetings, we were bored sick of them. And too often they're all pixelated because everyone's on the internet all the time, and loads of people didn't have enough bandwidth. And then you get to meet somebody and you're like, Oh, that's what you look like. But better. Because we'll see the giver of life who is the one who is the light of the world. Verse 12 is perhaps the most important bit of the context that helps us understand what the perfect, the completeness of verse 10 is referring to. All the way through the Old Testament, there are these remarkable descriptions, rare and infrequent, but appearances, we call them theophanies, appearances of God to his people. And perhaps foremost in Paul's mind as he's writing this, is the way that God appeared to Moses. Do you remember when Moses was at the top of Mount Sinai and he would come down having met with God and his face had been so transformed by being with God that the people were terrified to be with him? Do you remember a little later when um, Miriam and Aaron were challenging Moses' authority and God said to them in Numbers 12, When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this isn't true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Uh, If you read Hebrew, the Numbers 12 reference is literally not saying face to face. It's saying mouth to mouth. And so perhaps Paul is also thinking of this description at the end of Moses' life as he looks back on all that has happened with Moses. In Deuteronomy 34, we're told, Since then, Moses' death, No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. All of that is describing the hope that John had for the future. Remember when John is given this majestic vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And they're surrounding the throne of God and the Lamb are right in the middle of the city. All the servants of God. They serve him and they will see his face. Christians, so will you. You will behold in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God whose very presence transformed the face of Moses. The uniqueness of the privilege that Moses had to meet with God will be the experience of every single man, woman, and boy and girl who loves and trusts in Jesus when they see him face to face. And there's another way. Paul explains why we won't need these temporary gifts when we're with Jesus. We will finally have, verse 12, perfect knowledge. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. That doesn't doesn't mean we're going to have infinite omniscience like God. But it means that men and women who have been made and redeemed and remade to be the glorified men and women in his image, will know all that any creatures can know. Now there's an important theological question around verses 10 to 12 that we don't have time to dig into this evening. But what I want to do is ask the question, give you a a minute on what the discussion is, and then offer to give you resources this week if you would like to look at that further. Here's the question. Does this passage, I'm thinking verse 10 in particular, does this passage tell us whether any of the spiritual gifts will end before Jesus comes? That's a really important question. Some Christians believe it does, and they do so for different reasons. So if you look in verse 8 you will see that that is the only time in this section that the word tongues is mentioned, and it's got a different verb. Now, I appreciate that's hard to pick up in English because we've got all these different verbs, haven't we? We've got uh, ceased and stilled and pass away and and disappears and uh, put behind me. But actually, four of those are all using the same Greek word, and tongues is using a different word in a different voice. And some people argue that that's showing us that tongues will end before the completeness, the perfectness, comes. Others make equally extensive arguments that none of these gifts will end until Jesus, who is the perfect completeness, comes. And if you'd like to read into those arguments so you can understand them a bit better, please drop me an email. I will send you some resources this week. Personally... Uh, I want to say two things. One is, at the age of 41, I don't think I'm wise enough to know for sure what I think. (laughs) And secondly, I am at this stage most persuaded that that's not the question Paul's asking in this text. Paul's argument here is that the here and now is partial and passing. Our gifts, our knowledge, all of it is incomplete and impermanent. And the big contrast that I think Paul is trying to make for these Corinthians who are all obsessed with these gifts because they think they're the only thing that matters and that all of their focus is on the here and now, their big focus he's trying to show us is that when our eternal life begins, the gifts will cease. What is temporary will fade away, and all that's partial will become complete. That's the main focus of what Paul is teaching us here. He's not, I don't think giving us a timeline on whether any of the other gifts might end any earlier. I think, if I'm honest, the, um, the summary that Richard Gaffin comes to is as, is as honest and as as extensive as I think we can get to in this one text. He he writes this, Paul is not intending to specify the time when any particular mode of revelation will cease. What he does affirm is the termination of the believer's present fragmentary knowledge based on likewise temporary modes of revelation when the perfect comes. The time of the cessation of prophecy in tongues is an open question so far as this passage is concerned, and will have to be decided on the basis of other passages and considerations. And if you want to dig into that further, again, some of the resources I'm happy to give you will point you in the right direction. Now, whether you agree with Gaffin or not, the most important point from this text is to keep the big idea the big idea. That of all of these wonderful gifts, they will come to an end, and therefore, fourthly and finally... We need to pursue love above any temporary gifts. Look at verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It would not surprise you to know that there is even controversy about verse 13. Uh, Let me briefly explain why. What is the now referring to? Uh, For lots of people, we come to that word, especially after verse 12, and we think it's describing the here and the now. And there's lots of good reason to think that. That's been the way that Paul's used the word in verse 12. And on top of that, let me picture for you briefly some of the ways that the Bible talks about faith and hope. Okay, So Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, we live by faith, not by sight. Which implies at least that part of our faith will end when our faith is turned to sight, right? And then Paul describes hope. And he says in Romans 8 that hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Which implies that when we reach our eternal home, we will have what we've hoped for and therefore won't need to hope for it any longer, And that means, if you put all of that together, love, verse 13, could be considered the greatest of all of those three virtues because it's the only one that continues into eternity. that makes sense? Now, I think that does genuinely make sense, but I don't think that's all that Paul's saying here. I think what Paul's trying to do is help us think temporally about time, now in the present, and Logically, given all that I've said, now in light of those things, this is true. I don't think it's helpful to only think logically because the now is present tense. The remain is describing something right now that goes on into the future. But there's also this sense of the conclusion of his argument. He's done all of these contrasting, verse 12, between now and then. And now he says, in conclusion... And there's no then in verse 13. Did you spot that? Because what is now is going to go on forever. Now, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love, therefore, are the things we need to grab hold of because unlike gifts which will end, these will continue, though all of them will be transformed when we are face to face with Jesus. So the Corinthians needed to stop obsessing about all of these particular gifts because they have lost the eternal perspective of what is going to last beyond the grave and into eternity. And that is such a glorious way for this passage to end. Because I certainly do not have, and maybe many of us feel, that we don't have the big showy gifts that the Corinthians would prize. And that's okay. It's okay because God's sovereign and he gives the gifts as he chooses. And he is God and does all things well. And it's also okay because in his mercy, he has told you and me that what will last forever is what he gives to all Christians. Saving faith. In a God who would send his son from heaven to earth to die in the place of sinners like me. Hope that my faith rests in one who has defeated the grave. And therefore, as I trust in him, I have nothing to fear today or for the rest of my tomorrows. And love for the one who would give his own son so that all of those blessings would be mine. We are still, I think, as a church, speaking of the church in our country, not just Emmanuel, we're still skewed by the Corinthian way of thinking about life. We're still tempted to place what we consider the most important gifts on a pedestal. And that can not only lead you to envy, it can also lead you to resentment and bitterness come back to this remarkable text and see that what God gives all of us is what will last forever. What a precious thing to know. Each of us this week, by God's help through his spirit, I can work on things this week that will continue into eternity. You try telling a pension advisor that. (laughs) That's what God enables us
0: to do.